0: Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexander Kurland. I'm the author of Modern Horse Training, a constructional guide to becoming your horse's best friend, and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalier. This is part two of a conversation with Dr. Michaela Hempen in which we consider the question, what is consciousness? What is the mind? And is this something that humans and other animals share? Your answer very much will affect your level of concern over animal welfare. Do we put only those regulations regarding how farm animals are cared for that protect human health Or do we insist that these animals live in conditions in which they are not just free from suffering, but they can also thrive and enjoy their lives? And if you're wondering why we're talking about assessing animal welfare as regarding uh, farm animals, all of this discussion relates very much to the way in which horses are are handled, horses are trained, horses are are managed. While we may be focusing on species in these assessments that are uh, other than horses, the questions still are very relevant. As we've discovered already from part one, this is a very complex topic that Michaela has been helping us to understand, especially as it relates to animal welfare. We'll pick up the conversation with a discussion of sentience and animal welfare assessments.
1: So if we talk about sentience and with the animal welfare, going back to animal welfare assessments, you'd need to find an argument that an animal, say a certain species, say we were talking about the octopus, can feel pain or is suffering, or can experience enjoyment, capacity to suffer and or experience of enjoyment then they would be sentient. And then we have a moral obligation of, which actually then often changes legislation. So for the animals, it's sort of a dead or alive thing. If they get the status of being sentient or not, well, actually in practice, it doesn't really change much for them. <laughs> but it should, in theory, it, it if it was put in practice, then that, that would be basically for them, you know, the upgrading. <laughs> you yeah. want. So that's what science needs to prove that they are sentient or that they feel enjoyment or, or pain or pleasure. Then the other one, which we don't have to go in, into detail, but I mentioned it is the, the self consciousness as another consciousness concept, which is then um, sometimes said that's higher level that, that includes things like self recognition, you know, this mirror, mirror test, etc. episodic memory, metacognition mind reading in the sense of that they can think what the other one is thinking or can guess what the other one is thinking. So putting you know putting yourself in the other person's shoe, something like that. And so you can distinguish self-awareness in bodily awareness, introspective, and social. So that's that's a higher level. In terms of welfare, that's not so relevant. It's more I don't know, what interest to I don't know to who, <laughs> academics, uh, philosophers, probably more philosophers, whether and, um, and we want animals. to establish that animals yeah. have self-consciousness, uh, philosophers, I would yes.
0: say. And pet owners. Yeah,
2: because I know I had some kind of resistance in me when Joe said they don't have consciousness. And I think you did too, Alex, because you brought up that mirror experiment or I think it was the pigeon maybe that was recognizing that the dot was on him looking at a mirror but that he couldn't see it except through the mirror and so he knew that the dot was not in the mirror that it was on him
0: but well, but Joe was showing us how you could was telling us how you can train that so yeah. going through the training process exactly uh, it, you know you can you don't need to bring Self awareness mm-hmm. in as an explanation when right. you look at how that is trained, and that goes back again to the the Keeler and and Epstein study of what is insight. But you're saying we're going to get to that, so I shouldn't. I no, shouldn't well, do. that's
1: that's probably no, that's probably exactly the the point. So why I'm saying that there are three different ways of no, three out of many how you can define consciousness. So self consciousness is not the only definition of consciousness so if i think the one that is important to us is is the one that we talked earlier phenomenal consciousness or is the the ability to feel pain or pleasure and all those other feelings those are the important that's important whether they can recognize you know that they have a mark here or or not that's already methodological problematic also the other tests they have not some other tests on, on metacognition i don't think they are good tests so also because you can't test for it. So it's moot you don't need to you don't need to do it's not relevant for valuing animals to me it's right. it's not it's not important so it's it's an interesting experiment so Epstein with the with the training the pigeons so he said that pigeons can do it once you you train them how to so we,
0: we should probably describe that so it was Keeler during the first world was stranded on the island of Tenerife and was doing various experiments with chimpanzees in which he hung a banana uh, up out of reach. But what the chimpanzees had available to them were some long sticks and some crates. And the chimpanzees pushed the crates under the bananas, got up on the crates, used the long sticks and were able to knock the bananas down. And Hewlett's explanation at the time was insight, that they had an insight on how to solve this puzzle. And then Skinner was saying, well, what, what is insight? You know, it's a meaningless term. What is insight? And so he and Robert Epstein set up the this, this study with the pigeons where the pigeons were taught to climb up. And the pigeons had their wings clipped. So they couldn't just fly up and peck at the banana. But they learned to jump up on a box. They learned to push the box to a specific point, And they learned to peck a plastic banana for a reinforcement. And when they were put in the chamber within, I mean, it's just astounding when you watch first watch the video, how quickly this pigeon sort of looks around and he looks up at the Banana and and he tries and jump to jump up to the banana, can't reach it. And then in a matter of seconds, really, he's pushing the box underneath the banana, hopping up on the box and pecking the banana. And one of them, I think it was in about a minute that this pigeon solved that puzzle. But they only solved it because they had in repertoire jumping up on the box and pushing. The box to a specific point and if they didn't have those things in repertoire they couldn't solve the puzzle. So Skinner is saying, well what what is insight? It's not sitting in the mind where you just sort of sit there and and scratch your your, your chin for a few minutes and think, ah, I've got it, Eureka that um that you need this repertoire and then you can solve the puzzle. So
1: yeah, and they did the same with the mirror test. So yes. they 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 taught the pigeon first how to use the mirror, and then how and also separately how to touch a mark, and then they combined it, and then the pigeon was able to do that. And then basically they screwed up the whole concept that other scientists probably had or philosophers had, where they wanted only the the apes to be succeeding in the yes. <laughs> the, the, the prime is to succeed in the mirror test because they don't want any other animal <laughs> to I mean, you
0: know to be up upgraded. That's right. And then somebody oh, got an elephant to do it. Well, that's all right because elephants are yeah, yeah exactly yeah, right. Yeah, but, but a pigeon but that,
1: right. But then how I mean, why would that test actually say anything about self awareness? I mean, that's why would that be a valid test for self awareness? I mean, who says that even? And I actually also, I read somewhere that the when you look at some of these experiments with the primates and you compare the number, the frequency of touching the spot in presence and in absence of the mirror, the difference was actually not that significant. So it was marginal. So they've been touching their face anyway, with the spot or without the spot, or I mean with the mirror or without the mirror. Right, right, right so the test is meaningless they also do another so for metacognition whatever that means i don't know <laughs> yeah some higher level what only only humans can do so they started doing this also with you know with animals which is you know it's good let animals show what 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 they can do but the problem is that these tests one you know are these valid tests for what you're trying to prove which I think is a question mark. And the other thing is how did you train those things because that's the general problem. so they 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 do actually test that we know, for example, match to sample. Yes. and then based on that, they would say the animal has the ability for metacognition because they passed that test or they did not pass that test and nobody asks, how did you train it? Yes, nobody asks. They never do. So it's 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 really unfair, I think yes. And the other explanations that we learn learned from people like Joe Lang are, you know, what maybe the schedules of reinforcement that made the animal do this or that, or, you know, did we actually teach all the prerequisites? Does the animal actually know how to press the lever? All these type yes. of things that in often in these studies, they don't, because they don't have the experience in doing this type of experiments. And that's one of the big problems we have with the welfare papers.
0: So when when I'm talking about training and I'm introducing the clicker training and make the distinction between the horse training that I originally encountered where the statement is made that horses are stupid animals and because they're stupid animals, we need to use force to train them. But don't worry, dear, they don't feel pain the way we do. And that was, that was a statement. That wasn't something that was implied. That was a clear statement that was made. And it wasn't just one individual who was making that statement. I could go to any tax store in the country and see evidence of that belief system. And then I contrast that with my own core belief system about horses, which is that horses are intelligent animals that have a rich emotional life and because of that, we need to treat them with great fairness and, and kindness. And that, that sits at the core of my training choices. And this seems to me to be relevant to what you're describing here in terms of sentience and do animals experience and are aware of a range of emotions? I see you. And does that matter? And what does that mean?
1: Yes, exactly. What does that mean? (laughs) So let me go to Skinner wrote an an article, I think pretty much in the beginning, probably when he was still fighting his case. Uh, I guess he did for the whole of his time. But in 1964, he was at the, I think at a conference and probably was the only one the only behaviorist and all the others thinking about consciousness and mind and all of that. And he wrote there that the objection is not that these things, so that he refers to cognition and motives, are mental, but that they offer no real explanation and stand in the way of a more effective analysis. And that's, yeah, that's what I, that's, I think is, is true, it really gets, gets in, in the way. And we we don't, we don't need these explanations because there are other ways to, to explain it. And this, we don't need to put anything inside the animal, you know, it's, there is no, the mind or the brain or or trying to infer it's not, it's not necessarily because with the methodology he developed, you know, with all the other colleagues, there are ways to understand behavior without making up these concepts, these philosophical concepts of of the mind that we can't measure anyway. So, and I think that's probably what the big misunderstanding was. He didn't say that there is no such thing as feelings, but it's not something we can directly measure. So why trying to explain something that you scientifically can't?
0: To people as well as to animals.
1: Yeah, I think there was no difference anyway. I mean, for uh, I think behaviorism is is the behavior of the organism is the same, right? Right. So that argument doesn't even count. And and this is basically that we analyze it behavior in a in a different way, and that is really a big big divide between the two the two sciences, I think. So because we learned. You know, also from the podcast with Joe about, you know, stimulus control, the work I did with Blondie about how important the environment is on on behavior and the contrast between explaining behavior from the inside out. Yes. That behavior starts in the brain or that emotions start a behavior and then it comes out in an action that we then observe and try to explain versus the other way around, where actually behavior starts in the environment. I mean, who can understand this if it, you know, it, 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 it's so totally different. And that's where, where I struggle so much because I, I, the behaviorism, so thinking of it as stimulus control is so appealing to me. It's so logical. It's totally logical. And if I look at the behaviors I read in all these papers that I have to integrate into a report and they're like, they say like, yeah, you know, the, the, the laying hand is doing this type of behavior because it's frustrated because it can't do exploratory behaviors. like, how do you know it's frustrated? It's just, it's just not logical. It, to me, it doesn't have the, the beauty of a logical argument, whereas explaining it with stimulus control is beautifully logic to me. But of course, if you hear it for the first time and it's not explained well, you only get bits and pieces, then that's very difficult probably. <laughs> To, to, to warm open your heart <laughs> to it right. right So so I struggled a little bit, which is you know was thinking okay I say the mind, the mind why are all these mental processes and, and and where does this come from and what is the mind? And so I I was really struggling with that and, and reading a lot until I basically concluded for myself that the mind is the environment. Self, self self-consciousness, who I am, I'm only a collection of behavioral patterns that I have accumulated during my lifetime.
0: Which makes enormous sense. It makes enormous sense and it's very tidy, but it's not. I'm going to ask a question. (laughs) Yes, please.
2: I was just looking at a dog just before the podcast. She was sleeping on the floor. And she was dreaming, or so I say. Her legs were moving, and I, and I knew we were going to do this podcast. So I was thinking, hmm, am I looking at a dog who has some mental representations of herself running in an abstract way? Because she is not running, she's sleeping. But she's doing all these moves. As if she were running. Was there any discussion about dream in what you read on these different approaches?
1: Yes. So sleep is very important to study consciousness in humans. So they, they use sleep and the brain waves during, you know, the different types of sleep and what's going on. And then also waking up people when they are in their best of sleep, trying to ask them what they were dreaming about and trying to draw conclusions about consciousness in that sense. I mean, for animals, again, it's diff- you, you can't you, you can't do that. We can only interpret from our own experience and then project that to the animals, which may be true or may not be true. We don't know. Right. but yet but they, they, they they do use that. but it's not in contrast to to a behavior analytic view, I think because you think of the of the brain being having really very few uh, input sources, you know, I mean, the brain sits in the skull mm-hmm. and relies on signals that come in through our our senses from the outside or from the inside and has to make sense of it so how should the brain know whether something comes from the outside or from the inside the brain cannot know that so they makes the brain makes sense of whatever information comes in so i think it doesn't really make a difference to the brain whether it's dreaming or it's actually getting it from the outside i think the signal that comes will be the same and actually i don't not only during sleep i would say that is and now I'm blabbering. I'm that is just my philosophy. So I'm I don't have much evidence for it. But from the reading and making it logical to me, I think that it's it's all it internal signals the brain gets, and to make sense of it, we could probably change what we perceive consciously or unconsciously by discrimination training. So if say now I don't feel my gut doing something but if i had feedback in a, in a way and some internal system could teach me how to differentiate between my bowel going to the right or going to the left i could start becoming conscious of that but i don't have that feedback nobody teaching it to me but if it if there was a system to teach me i'm sure i could become aware of it so what is conscious or unconscious to me is a matter of discrimination training <laughs> I know that's a bold thing to say, but it's, to me, that is logical. And for example, I don't know, with birds who have such a good eyesight, you know, they can make the smallest changes probably in, in light or color or shape. They can differentiate, whereas for us, that is not relevant. We don't, it's not relevant to us, so we don't pay attention to it. For them, it is very relevant. Otherwise, they crash into a tree or they don't get the food. So they learn to differentiate and become aware of, of, of details that we are not aware of. And whether that's internal or external, I don't think it's a difference. The difference is that nobody teaches me. There's no feedback. I don't, I can. I don't, the discrimination task is impossible because I, I nobody. I cannot learn how to differentiate or you only do differentiate when it's important to you because you get feedback.
0: It's a bit like going, my going for a walk through woods. And I'm aware of birdsong, maybe. I'm aware that I'm walking past trees, but I might not know what the trees are. I might not be able to identify the bird songs, what species. I might not see fungus growing on the side of the tree. All these things that I would not be aware of walking to the woods. But now I go through the woods with an ornithologist and that individual will help me to become so much more aware of the movement of birds through the trees and, oh, by the way, this tree is a poplar and this tree is an ash and all of that is relevant because it determines where i'm likely to see this particular species of bird and or these insects that uh, grow on the tree and therefore draw the birds in and so the next time i walk through the woods i will have a much richer experience and that's basically that's in a sense that's what you're describing it's what is our life experience trained us to be aware of or to filter out
1: Exactly, auto-filter out, exactly. Auto-filter because out. if we were aware of our bowel mov- movements all the time, we would go crazy, so yeah. we cannot focus our attention on that. Or if
0: we were aware of, you know, we're, we're, wearing, we're wearing clothes, <laughs> but we're not aware of the feeling of the clothes unless, unless they become, unless they're too tight or too, you know, maybe they're itchy, and even there we can filter that out. We're not really aware of how the, our shoes are not really fitting that well until they start to cause blisters. Right, uh, so try a change, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So we filter out an enormous amount of stimuli that are not relevant in the moment.
1: And there you can go back to your horse training. You know your class that you teach, learn how to see the differences of body posture or yes the muscles being tense or relaxed. So initially, where you say, you know, let's watch it for the first time and we don't see anything. And then once you point things out, then people can can see those changes. Yes. So then you are aware. You've become conscious <laughs>
0: <Yes>. <laughs> before you were unconscious. Yes. yes. That. Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, I look, I will show a picture, you know, the example, non-example, same horse, standing in the higgletypigglety posture and then the changes and I'll you know, show that to somebody who's not familiar with horses and, and hasn't been you know thinking along these lines and to them it doesn't look any different and I'll look at it and think how can you not see the differences? <laughs> what do you mean they look the same? Well it's just a brown horse. How can you not see? The, the sagging back, the you know, the this peak going in every other direction and the tension and you know, how can you not see that in the non-example and then this beautiful, the lift, the expression, you know, the the expression of the top line coming up as the horse lifts up from the base of its neck and he's standing square over a base of support and, and he looks so much more athletic and all of these things how can you not see that but they don't initially and that's and if you don't see it then it doesn't make a difference it doesn't matter if you don't see the ringing tail the pinned ears the tension in the horse's face then it doesn't matter you know that so as you're watching a horse being trained and the three of us are sitting there going you know oh Oh, this, this this is this is not good. Doesn't matter if you don't see the distress. And that's got to be the same with the farm animals.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Which should we go on going to welfare? Absolutely.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes. Right.
1: Okay. So because the argument about animal consciousness, I think, really is irrelevant uh, when assess animal welfare, because what it boils down to is, can they suffer? Can they enjoy? So you'd only need to prove that or establish that, which is encapsulated in the term sentience, to have a moral obligation of treating animals well. So a lot of these assessments are well, you start with the fact that a certain animal species, because here we always talk, it's very species specific. So that's the ethology coming in. So we talk about dairy cows, horses, rabbits, etc. So they can feel pain. And I think in most species, there's no argument there anymore. So we, you don't need to defend that. The dis- <laughs> it's interesting because actually we don't have a very good definition of animal welfare as such. Yeah, it's weird. Broom um, uh, defines it as the state of an animal as it regards its attempts to cope with the environment. Welfare is a wide term that embraces both physical and mental well-being. So cope. Now we are expanding it to include also positive emotions. So maybe we get a chance to talk about that later. But so I think what most people might know are the five freedoms. So that's framework to assess animal welfare. So say you go, uh, you look at dairy cows in a, in a farm, for example. So the five questions uh, you'd need to assess in the five freedoms model would be freedom from hunger and thirst, freedom from discomfort, freedom from pain, injury, or disease, freedom to express normal behavior, and freedom from fear and distress. So these are all quite negative. So basically trying to avoid... The worst and freedom to express normal behavior is in relation to what you would see, for example, in the wild. So normal is then based on, say you have farmed rabbits and you then look to wild rabbits, what do they do? What do you consider an ethologist doing an ethogram and all of that? They'd say rabbits in the wild do these and these behaviors. They spend so much time on it, etc., etc. And are farmed rabbits able to show that same type of behavior? And the other ones are really not easy to assess. No, those distress,
2: ones. distress must be pretty difficult to clearly. All
1: of, Yes, distress. I mean, okay, injury, it's sort of the easiest disease. So as a veterinarian, Myself, I mean, I would say injury, disease is probably the easiest. Pain is already difficult and you would not think of it, but pain is an emotion. And actually hunger and thirst are feelings as well because you can't measure hunger. Hunger is a perception. Yep. So discomfort is a perception and fear and distress is a perception. But people don't realize that these are perceptions. They think it's something biological. You think of hunger as something biological, but it's not. It's a perception. You may be eating because you're hungry, or you may be eating because it's time to eat. Mm-hmm. It's not biological. So these are not very precise. Now, since welfare sciences or welfare assessments are now wanting to be more positive, you know, be not only avoiding the worst, but also trying mm-hmm. to provide an environment to the animals that is worth living. Mm. the The current model is the five domains model, and that one talks about nutrition, environment, health, behavioral interactions, and mental state mm. experiences. <laughs> so, <laughs> nutrition is from sure freedom from hunger and thirst. So now we talk what what are the nutritional requirements? So horses need forage. How much forage do they need? Uh, environment. You know they need certain space. They need pasture or whatever. Health is you know, yeah, that's pretty obvious. Behavioral interactions, yes, they need you know interact with conspecifics and to be able to to maybe run, walk, graze, lie down. Interesting and that
0: that's separate from environment.
1: Environment is usually
0: more the space of the space of the box no, so it, of the pasture. It, it is interesting that that is. That those two things are pulled apart because we would be thinking conspecifics would be part of the environment.
1: All right, true, <laughs> true. Yeah, yeah. Well, they are very difficult. Actually, some of the things are very difficult to to categorize. But okay, it doesn't matter in the sense. At least they're there. Yeah. Which yes. domain you put
0: it? Doesn't, yes. Doesn't, but it doesn't is. Really... It's an interest. It's a, It's an interesting. Yeah, it's... Reflection on. The evolution of the thinking that they yeah. are compartmentalized in two separate areas.
1: Yeah. Also, because environment is totally different from we've been talking about environment with with training and changing the environment. That is me changing me, changing how I'm yeah. standing, where I'm standing. Yes. Being present, being absent. So no environment. There is more building the building yes. the structure. The, the
0: room that I'm sitting in right now is. Yes. The exactly. Yes, yeah,
1: which is probably why it's confusing when we talk about.
0: Yes. Um, yeah. And I suppose point. included in the environment would be whether the room is well ventilated, too yeah. hot, too cold. Exactly. Yeah, all of those things, and but then exactly
1: people, light, yeah. air quality, so nutrition is water. Yeah. How much do they eat? What's the quality or quality of it? And health yes, yes, it? obviously. Yes. Yeah. Behavior. Yeah. So behavioral interaction is behavior in, in in general, and there we are already. If you look at the details, it's already going to be complicated. And mental state is total chaos because we don't have the tools for it. Right. But so the good thing is that mental state basically now they want to include the positive experiences into that assessment. So and it's possible in this. I mean, this is only a framework, right? To how to right. how to present the information, how to
0: make sense of it.
2: So it's not just. If the animal is fighting
0: himself, it's
2: more than that.
0: So we would. So you're. We're beginning to include enrichment mm-hmm. opportunities in these assessments. Yes. 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 Exactly.
2: Is training in there? Yes, it would be human-animal can animal I mean, interaction. Would argue that training is essential to the well-being of an animal, but I don't know. <laughs> It's if the quality in.
1: of it. Yeah, it's the quality of the the quality of human animal interaction is is hmm. in it.
2: Okay. Yes.
1: So, but the so the, the the how you how so how you measure welfare. So we have different ways of measuring measuring it, and then so you're measuring it, and that's what you put into the these categories. So you fill them with with measures. So you could measure sort of environment based would be air quality, how how many purchases do the laying hens have how many nests the quality of the litter etc or you would say management based would be how often do they get fed how often is it so what's the the farmer doing you know how often do they clean 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 it out so it's not only providing the equipment that would be equipment based and then is management is what do they do with it how do they maintain it how do they feed it, and then you have the animal based measured and animal based measures are sort of the highest value indicators in animal welfare assessment. Uh, And there is already sort of a difficulty for me because animal welfare scientists define those as asking the animal Mm. (laughs) because you observe something on the animal, but being a trainer from a training background is saying you're not asking the animal, you're just looking at it because it means are there injuries, are they so their behavior, observations of their behavior? How often do they lie down, stand up, lameness scores, body condition score? Are they panting, sweating? I don't so you, you are looking at it and, and making a judgment. So that's animal-based. So they're not they're not asking as such, but they are basically the closest to the animal point of view, looking at it, basically. So those are the oh, highest, sure. highest All value. Time.
0: If I'm looking at a barn full of horses and I'm seeing horses pinning their ears at the horse in the stall next to them, kicking the stall walls, etc, I would be seeing that this is an environment that needs some changes.
1: Right. And of um, course you take you take frequency and see how often does it happen, how many horses are, so the proportion of horses showing that behavior. So then you yes. look at the the victims, of aggressive behavior as well. How many are victims and who are the victims of aggressive behavior? And so ethological approach. So you do observations and then informed by say veterinary observations in terms of injury, disease, mortality, this type of, this type of things, yes. but we're not talking about operant responses or asking them in, in terms of, you know, choice experiments or things like that. So, so those are, would be animal based measures. So one difficulty is that when they define what an animal needs in terms of behavior so coming from an ethology perspective thinking that a behavior originates inside the animal so they define that as an emotional need because they looked at behavior in the wild and then extrapolate that to what animals need in captivity and that is a behavioral need so dust bathing behavior in hens and laying hens for example so they see fowl in the wild dust bathing and we want to see that also in, in farmed animals. So you could see as an indicator that would be an animal-based indicator, uh, the percentage of animals at any given moment dust bathing, right? And that would then you would have to define a cutoff value and say if it's. Uh, I don't know 20% at any given moment, or maybe they prefer doing it in the mornings. So you say 20% of the of the flock during the morning is dust bathing. Then I define that as acceptable welfare, or good welfare, or poor welfare, or whatever you 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 think. So that would be a way of assessing the welfare on a behavior.
2: There's no, behavior no level. study of one here. You could it would be unmanageable to look at it that way. You have to look at it like you said from a more etological. well the study
1: of and one in the etological context would be unrepresentative because right. you they're they looking at a population base. yes, so the study of one would be invalid.
0: So we know that the track system. is something that a lot of people are looking at these days of instead of having a horse out in a, a big open pasture, they create tracks that give the horses different footing, et cetera, and often they're done so that they can reduce the amount of grass that the horses are exposed to. And Jamie Jackson was one, I think one of the first people to propose the track system. And as part of his track system, he said, horses need to get in touch with you know, their wild horse experiences. They need to be exposed to predators. And so as you design your track system, part of your track system should include a place where you've scattered, say, mountain lion scat. Or, or yes, oh, okay. this, is, this is what originally put me off the track system. And no, I never watched... knew that
1: part of it. I only know yes. the tracks. And... <laughs> <Okay.
0: Yeah>. It's <laughs> like, okay, so, so perhaps as we're assessing welfare, we don't need to bring in every <laughs> aspect of what a wild animal is experiencing. You know, maybe those those birds are dust bathing because they're full of lice, but in the environments that people have them in, they're controlling for that. And they don't need to dust bathe because they're not full of lice. You know, there are yeah. we have to look at at these things with some degree of I want to say common sense, but it's not common sense at all. Yeah, and we don't. Yeah. We don't need our horses to experience moments of oh, "there's a mountain lion, I need to get out of here."
1: That reminds me of of Circus Krone's horses. You know, the ones that Anya Beran is uh, is training because they have to. They are with the lions all the time. Oh yes, and she said some of them don't care, and others actually do care, but. Some are really oblivious; they don't mind the lines at all. <laughs> yes, so it's 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 not easy then, and so we'd be you know in order to decide on these cutoff values, you would have to do a number, lots of experiments, and trying to get some sort of decision point. Uh, but it's it's really it's really problematic, and also, I mean, what do you do with a percentage? You know, do you put it at twenty percent or eighty or fifty, and and what does that mean? So it's really difficult. But I, I think conceptually the interesting part is, you know, looking at why explaining why an animal behaves in a certain way and where, what do you consider normal behavior? Because in, in ethology, looks from the outside and wild, etc., the population based and trying to derive what an animal in captivity needs, and that maybe you know some of the things are probably good because you know providing more space that horses can have more space to, to roam around and being in a herd, being in a group, uh, yes. having a lot of forage. So all these are informations that are very valuable. But as you said, others are maybe not that valuable. So you'd need to test those. And I think these tests are actually not really done. And that's, that's what I want to bring in with the project that I wrote. <laughs> so <clears throat> because now the new thing is uh, positive animal welfare. So we want to provide animals, uh, so not only with the conditions that they survive, so but we want them to thrive. So to have yes. good quality of life, the final fate may not change, but at least the time of their life they, they, they enjoy. So they're not only surviving. So down the concept comes in of, of well, emotions come in anyway, because we, we are assessing that they're free of fear, freedom of fear, so emotions are already there. But it's getting more complicated if if you want to assess whether an animal is happy or content. Yes. So how how do you assess that? And then the question comes up: Do animals actually have emotions, and have do they have the same emotions, and do we have emotions?
0: <laughs> yes.
1: And what are emotions?
0: What are emotions? <laughs> This is a great place to take a break. Michaela is leaving us with a powerful and very important statement. As Michaela says, we want to provide animals not only with the conditions that they need to survive, but also we want them to thrive. We want them to have a good quality of life, a life they can enjoy. I would think it's a fair statement to make that everyone listening to this podcast Wishes this for their own horses and for all the other animals under their care. The work Michaela is involved in takes us beyond our personal animals to the welfare of farm animals. In the next episode, she'll discuss the challenges involved in developing and assessing measures of animal welfare. So it's a new year as we're publishing this. Coming up in January, I'll be at the Clicker Expo Live, January 26th through 28th, 2024. And in addition to my presentations, I'll be joined by Ken Ramirez on Sunday, January 28th to talk about my new book, Modern Horse Training. And speaking of new books, in January, the second book in the Kenyan Bear series will be published. The title is Edgar, the bear who wanted to be real. It's always exciting to have a new book coming out. I'll be sharing more about Edgar in the weeks ahead. So for now, I'll just wish everyone a very happy new year. I wish you all the best in the coming year. Train well and have fun with your horses.